Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit who gives life, has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who did not live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires, but those who live in accordance with the spirit have their minds set on what the spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. This is the word of the Lord. What is true spirituality? That's a big question in our world. Today, you hear a lot of people talk about being spiritual but not religious, or people talk about deconstructing their faith but not abandoning their faith. What does this mean? Maybe one of the most helpful people to listen to on this is a woman named Tara Isabella Burton. She is an expert on American spirituality, um, especially among younger people. And she wrote a book a couple of years ago called Strange Rights, New Religions for a Godless World. One of the main things she says is that people today are not rejecting religion, they're remixing it. She calls it the remixed generation and says this, today's remixed reject authority, institution, creed, and moral universalism. They value intuition, personal feeling, and experience. They prioritize intuitional spirituality over institutional religion. She's she's saying that people do long for spirituality today, for spiritual reality. And so she goes on to say this, that this book is about the Americans who don't know if this world is all there is or what all means or there or even is. It is about our quest for knowing, for belonging, and for meaning, the pilgrimage none of us can get out of. Today's Easter, which means that many of us are here for many different reasons. Uh, Some of you may have even been dragged here by friends or family members, and if that's you, then I want to say thank you for your presence here 
today. But one of the main things Tara Isabella Burton is saying is that all of us are on a quest for things like meaning, beauty, belonging. We all long for a story that's bigger than ourselves. And so even though our relationship with traditional institutional religion might be changing, our longing and quest for those things never changes. And we can see that um, when we see the profound spiritual search that is going on in the world all around us and that some of you may be on even today. So what does that have to do with this passage that we just read? And what does all of this have to do with Easter? We're in a series, right in the middle of a series on Romans chapters 5 through 8, which is all about finding new life or really resurrection life in Christ. What does that mean? Well, if you are here for the first time, you really joined us on the perfect day. Because in Romans chapter 8, the Apostle Paul summarizes everything he's been talking about up until this point, And he brings it all together to focus on one huge question. What is true spirituality? What is true spirituality? The word spirit shows up in Romans 8 21 times. 19 of those times, it's talking about the Holy Spirit. Romans chapter 8 is all about what does it mean to live a truly spiritual life. And so we're going to look at that this morning. Actually, we're going to look at Romans 8 over the next several weeks. This morning is just an introduction, and we're just going to look at the first four verses. But even here, Paul shows us something very counterintuitive about true spirituality That if we want to really enter into a spiritual life, it means dealing with two problems and the solution. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. Very simple. We're going to see problem number one, problem number two, (laughs) and the solution. All right? So first, problem number one. Let's start with the easy one first. Death. Some of you may be thinking, how is death an easy problem? Well, We'll talk more about that when we get to problem number two. But look at what Paul says in the very beginning. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Now, when Paul talks about the law nine times out of ten— maybe even 90 times out of 100. He's normally talking about the Jewish law, like the Ten Commandments, and by extension, that includes the moral law, which applies to all people. We said a couple of weeks ago, it's kind of like this moral GPS that's been installed in every human being. But here, when Paul talks about the law of death, it really means something more like the power of death. It's kind of like electricity. You know, when you flip a light switch, the law of electricity says the lights are going to come on. It's more like a power here. Paul is reminding us here of the power of death, which is a real problem, because death means that everything you love the most, all the people you love the most, all the things that give you most joy in this world, that death steals all of those things away from you. Death purloins all of the things we love the most and takes them away forever. We lose them and they're never going to get them back. They're gone forever. That is a horrifying state of affairs. It's a problem. And different cultures throughout history have come up with different responses to this problem. Let's just name three of the biggest 
first is this. The modern Western response to death says that death is natural. It says this world is nothing more than the product of a mindless, unguided, natural process. There is no God. There is no afterlife. And so when you die, it's just lights out, nothing to be frightened of. Another major response is the Eastern response, which says death is an illusion. So that would include things like Buddhism, New Age spirituality, Vedic traditions. Um, You also see this response, by the way, at the very end of the TV show, The Good Place. Um, And I don't want to spoil the show for you, but at the very end of the show, two of the characters, Eleanor and Chidi, are getting ready to say goodbye to each other forever. They're talking about death. And Eleanor says, I never was any good at being sad, but this is really sad, man. Do you got any wisdom for me? And Chidi says, well, for the spiritual stuff, you got to turn to the east. Picture a wave in the ocean, and you can see it. You can measure it, its height, the way the sunlight refracts as it passes through. And, And it's there, and you can see it, and you know what it is. It's a wave. And the wave crashes on the shore, and it's gone, but the water is still there. The wave was just a different way for the water to be for a little while. That's one conception of death for a Buddhist. The wave returns to the ocean where it came from and where it's supposed to be. And Eleanor, with a little tear falling down her cheek, says, Not bad, Buddhists. And Chidi says, not bad. But then he looks her in the eye, this person, and they're getting ready to say goodbye to each other forever. Chidi looks at her and he says, none of this is bad. Friends, the Western view and the Eastern view both would urge us to accept death, to say, none of this is bad. I was on the phone earlier this week with a dear friend of mine who became a widow a few years ago, and she told me it's really, it's all about learning to make friends with death. It's all about acceptance. You know, both the West, the Western view says death is natural. The Eastern view says death is an illusion. Both of them say none of this is bad. And I want to be clear about something. Both of these are very serious views of reality, and both of them are worth taking very seriously, especially if you're considering or exploring spirituality. But I want us to at least be clear what the options are, because the biblical response says that death is an intruder, which is a very different response. The Bible says that this world, this creation was created good, but now everything is falling apart. Literally, that's what death is, and yet that is not the way that it was supposed to be. So when my friend said, it's all about learning how to make friends with death, You know how sometimes people say things with such confidence as though it's just obvious to everybody and you don't want to be that person who contradicts them? I I don't know, maybe some of you don't mind being that person, but I don't want to be that person. And yet I didn't want to just say nothing. And I thought about it for a few moments and then I just told her, well, you know I'm a Christian minister and that this Sunday is Easter and Easter really is all about a man, Jesus, who refused to make friends with death. And she said, hmm, never really thought about that. I'm not even sure what you mean. And I said, well, do you have a Bible? Read John chapter 11. 
John chapter 11 is really, in many ways, the most vivid picture of what Jesus thinks about death. Because in John chapter 11, Jesus shows up at the, at the tomb of his friend Lazarus, who's been dead for four days. And even though Jesus knows that he's there to raise Lazarus from the dead, and that in about five minutes, everybody there is going to be jumping for joy, even though they're weeping right now, Jesus does not scold them for weeping. He weeps with them. And even more than that, Jesus does not tell them none of this is bad. Jesus walks up to the tomb, and most translations say something like he was greatly moved or deeply disturbed, but the word literally that it's used there says he was quaking with rage. Jesus was furious. Have you ever been so angry that you just shook That's Jesus at the tomb. He is furious at death. He will not make friends with death because death is an intruder in his creation. Friends, here's the question for you. Um, Of these three views, which one of them makes best sense out of how you actually feel about death? And understand, death is what death is, regardless of how we feel about it. But if the terror, rage, anger, grief, sorrow, sadness, heartbreak, and despair that you feel is any indication of reality, or if the idea of maybe telling someone in Ukraine who's just lost their whole family, hey, none of this is bad, if that idea feels a little jarring or repellent to you, Jesus would say, pay attention to those feelings because that's how I feel about it too. At the heartbeat of Christian spirituality is this reality that death is an intruder, it's a problem, and it needs to be dealt with, and that leads to our second problem. We've just seen number one, the first problem is death, but number two, what is that problem? Well, have you ever thought about why is it that um, Christianity is so offensive to people? Jim Gaffigan is a famous comic. In one of his shows, he says, I do want everyone to feel comfortable. That's why I'd like to talk to you about Jesus. (laughs) It's funny, but it's painfully funny because nobody wants you to talk to them about Jesus. Why? Because the message of Jesus is inextricably linked to this message that says you're a sinner in need of salvation. And who wants to have that conversation? Friends, the second problem that we need to deal with is sin. And so if we go back to this verse, um, verses 1 and 2, Paul says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law or the power of sin. The second problem we need to deal with is sin. And I really do think in many ways this is an even harder problem for us to deal with than death. And I think we can summarize that problem in one word, condemnation. In our culture, there are very few things that are more offensive to us than this idea of sin and condemnation. We feel like it's this hangover from a primitive religious past, and we need to get over that. And it's important to say that there are good reasons for us to feel that way because the words sin and sinner have been used to condemn people, to demonize, marginalize, and oppress people, even to kill people. And yet, without the idea of sin, what do we call that? What do we call what's happening in Ukraine right now? 
What do we call what happened to George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery? What do we call what Hitler did to the Jews? How, how can we morally condemn those things if the whole idea of moral condemnation is nothing but a primitive religious superstition? I think most of us would at least grant the existence, well, there is real evil in the world. Okay, but you realize that just creates an even bigger problem for us because how do we think about moral, in the, moral evil in the world out there if we have no category for thinking about moral evil inside of ourselves? Now listen, I'm, this week is an introduction, just the first four verses. Next week, we are going to do a deep dive into the whole topic of sin. But for this week, I, I just want to ask you a question. Are we willing to go there? Are we willing to face this, to explore this question together? Because true spirituality, if we really want to find out what it means to live a spiritual life, it means we have to deal with this problem. Are we willing to go there? Especially if, um, if we think Jesus has anything to say to us about it. You know, maybe you're somebody who's remixing religion. Somebody who might say, well, I, you know, I'll take a, a pinch of Zen mindfulness or a dash of Wicca. And yeah, let's get a little Jesus into the mix. Not too much Jesus, but a little bit of Jesus because Jesus was a great moral teacher. I think most people would be willing to grant Jesus at least the status of a great moral teacher. Okay, if Jesus is a great moral teacher, what does Jesus teach about this? Once Jesus was teaching his disciples about prayer, and he said this, If you, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven good give, good give, give, <laughs> good gifts? to those who ask him. And by the way, I love that this is Matthew 7, 11. It always helps me to remember that just as I might go to the 7, 11 to get what I need, <laughs> Jesus is saying, go to your father to get what you need. But here's the point. You know, Jesus is talking about the goodness of God, but he's also a little sneaky here. Do you notice what he said? He says, if you, though you are evil, it's like this little side comment. He just slips it right in there. Jesus just assumes that we're all evil. Now, let me ask you a question. Do you think there were any axe murderers in the crowd that day when he was talking to them? What about here today? Any axe murderers in the house? <laughs> None? Really? Jesus just assumes that we're all evil. He takes it for granted. Now, here's the thing. What does Jesus mean by that? Well, he can't mean that we're all axe murderers, which means that either we have to rethink how we think about evil, or we have to give up this quaint little idea we have about Jesus being a great moral teacher. Because if Jesus is a great moral teacher, this is part of his moral teaching, that we have to deal with the problem of sin and evil in our own lives. And that's really hard for us because we live in what... Uh, many people acknowledge is a very therapeutic culture. A therapeutic culture means that the most important thing for us is that we would always feel good about ourselves. And that if anything makes us feel bad about ourselves, then that's bad and we should get rid of it. And especially we should never think about ourselves as evil or sinful because that just leads to shame and shame is a bad thing. That's harmful. And yet if that's the case, then what do we do with the things in our life that need to change? And even more, what do we do with the things in our life we can't change? Things that we've done, 
things, ways that we've hurt people, things we've done to them, things we've said to them. Is there really nothing in your life, no act of cruelty or evil that you don't think about from time to time? I have things like that in my life. And unless you're a sociopath, you have things like that in your life. What do we do with that? What if the, the things that make us feel bad about ourselves, what if some of those things, what if the shame that we feel, what if sometimes that, that actually has something important to tell us about ourselves? And, and what if listening to that is part of a path towards true spirituality and true transformation? Tressie McMillan Cottom is a, uh, a sociologist and a professor um, at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. And she wrote a column in the New York Times this past week in which she says this. She says, shame can be excessive, toxic shame it is called, but it can also be functionally good, like when it keeps your pants on in public. Despite the bad rap that shame gets in our overly psychoanalyzed culture, it is merely a feedback loop that tells you something about your behavior as well as the expectations of others. Now, you hear what she's saying. She's saying shame. There are, there are kinds of shame that can actually give you feedback on something important about yourself that we need to listen to. And understand, this is a published academic at a major East Coast university writing for the New York Times, and she's pushing back on the therapeutic narrative of our culture and saying, no, no, there's a kind of shame that's actually telling us something important. We need to listen to that. Yes, toxic shame tells us lies about ourselves, but there's a kind of shame that also tells us the truth about ourselves. The challenge is that there are lies that have been so deeply woven into your story that it's very difficult to tell the difference between the lies and the truth, and yet the tragedy is that unless we learn to tell the difference between those two things, we'll never be free from the lies. Friends, here's the big question. Um, What if the truth that you're listening to about yourself is the shame that you feel and the truth that you hear? Is that the final word on you? And if it's not, what is the final word on you? And even more, who gets to say? That leads to our last point. We've just seen problem number one is death. Problem number two is sin. But lastly, Paul gives us a little hope by showing us the solution. Because when we face the problems of this world, when we really face the despair, heartbreak, and futility of death, or the specter of human violence and evil in this world, when we really face those problems, it's not hard to understand why so many spiritual traditions are focused on helping us to escape this world. Because this world is full of pain. There's so much pain in our lives and in our stories, it's easy to understand why we would want to escape the world. I mean, that's what addiction is. It's numbing the pain of existence. That's what suicide promises so many people. It's escaping the pain of existence. Why do we want to escape this world? Well, Paul shows us in this passage. Remember, he's talking to Christians, and he says, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Now, remember, when he talks about the law here, here it means the power of sin and death. What he's saying is that there is a power. Sin and death have power. 
We face that power in this world, and it really is a struggle. And that when we face and struggle with the power of sin and death in this world, sin and death wins every single time. Why? Well, look at what he says next. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did. Now here, when Paul talks about the law, here he is talking about the law the Jewish law, and by extension, the moral law that applies to every single human being. Paul is saying the moral law was powerless against the power of sin and death. Why? Because it's weakened by the flesh. Now, again, next week, we're going to go further into this passage, and we're going to do a deep dive on what the flesh means. But for this morning, let me just summarize it like this. The flesh is shorthand for the insufficiency of human self-sufficiency. Flesh is shorthand for the insufficiency of human self-sufficiency. Paul is saying that all of our moral and ethical performance, all of the ways that we try to make ourselves better people and make this world a better place, that all of that is powerless against the power of sin and death. It's like a cage match with sin and death, and sin and death win every single time. So what's the solution? Well, look at what Paul says next. He says, what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering, and so God condemned sin in the flesh. Paul is saying that God sent his son, Jesus, in the likeness of sinful flesh. That means that God himself and the person of Jesus entered into this world. It's like the author of the story looking into his story and seeing all of the, everything has gone haywire. And it's like the author of the story writing himself into the story as one of the characters in the story in order to rescue everything in the story. How does he do that? By condemning it by condemning sin. And notice he does not say condemning the world. God is not condemning the world. He's rescuing and renewing the world by condemning the sin and death that's destroying the world. Paul does not say God is condemning the world. He says he's condemning sin in the flesh. Now, here's the million-dollar question. Which flesh? Or rather, whose flesh? Not yours, not mine, Jesus' flesh. Think about the, the, the condemnation that just wells up inside of you whenever you see something horrifically evil. When you see something really wrong, really wicked, that feeling that rises up inside of you, I mean, it, you just, it feels like every fiber of moral justice has been violated inside of you. And when you see real evil, everything inside of you, you just want to call down fire from heaven and obliterate it. Because that's what evil demands, obliteration. That's the final word that we long for on evil. Friends, Jesus Christ gathered together all of the evil, sin, violence, oppression, injustice, and wickedness of this world. He gathered it all together on his shoulders and on the cross. The fire of justice came down and obliterated all of it by obliterating Jesus. It's kind of like the very end of The Last Jedi or Episode 8 for you Star Wars nerds. 
At the very end of that movie, if you remember, the rebel forces are holed up in a fortress, and the evil empire shows up at the front door with a whole army full of those, those assault walkers, you know, those Star Wars t- giant tower firepower machines. They walk along. And just the firepower of one of those things is like off the charts. They have a whole battalion of them. But then Luke Skywalker shows up and he stands in front of all the army of assault walkers in defiance. And when Kylo Ren, the supreme leader, sees Luke Skywalker, he goes apoplectic. And he orders every single one of those assault walkers to just empty all its firepower on Luke Skywalker. I mean, it's a barrage of firepower that goes on for like 30 seconds, which is a really long time, until finally one of the commanding officers says, look, enough already. Do you think you got him? There's nothing left but this smoldering crater in the ground until finally some of the smoke starts to clear away and Luke Skywalker steps out without a scratch. He just flicks a piece of rubble off his shoulder. Friends, that is exactly what happened to Jesus Christ on the cross, except in the movie, the reason Luke Skywalker survived was because he only showed up as a hologram. But Jesus showed up on the cross for real. And when he rose from the dead and walked out of the tomb, that was no hologram either. That was for real. Friends, do you realize what this means for us? First, this means that the final word on death is that it's defeated. Listen, if the best that God could do for us was to help us to escape this world, then death has the final word. Because that's not a defeat of death, that's compromise with death. I grew up during the height of the Cold War, um, when everybody was concerned about nuclear annihilation. And remember, MAD, mad means mutually assured destruction. We had a word back then called detente. Anybody remember that word? Yeah. Detente means I promise not to you blow you up if you promise not to blow me up. Nobody wins in that situation. If the best God could do is, is help us to escape out of this world, that is not a defeat of death. That's detente with death. But Jesus defeated death. Jesus has the final word on death because Jesus defeated death through his cross and resurrection. And the reason he did it is because God is committed to this world, this physical material world. And that means that, that God's bringing about a new creation. That means that, that, yes, we can be angry at death. We should not make friends of death. It means that you can feel the grief, you can mourn the loss, but death does not have the final word resurrection is the final word on death. And that gives you a hope, a living hope, that no matter how futile or desperate things feel, even when it feels like death has snatched everything away from you, that gives you a hope that death is not the final word, that there is a resurrection, there is a renewal waiting for you, not an escape, not a detente, but a renewal, a resurrection waiting for you, like a little rosebud that's springing up out of the cold, icy, hard ground of death. Jesus is the final word on death. But second, Jesus is the final word on sin and shame. That means that no matter what your story is, no matter what's been done to you or no matter what you've done to others, no matter what people say or think about you, none of that is the final word on you. 
And even more, it doesn't even matter what you think about yourself. That's not the final word on you. The final word on you is the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The cross says, no condemnation. And the resurrection says, welcome thou beloved into the joy of your Father. That gives you a security and an assurance that enables you to face the darkest, hardest things about your life, to face all the things that that you really need to listen to no matter how difficult and painful they may be, because that's the path forward into true transformation. The gospel of Jesus gives you the strength, the assurance, and the confidence to do that because you know that you are safe and you are beloved. Do you have the living hope of the resurrection and the sacrificial love of the cross in your life? Friends, that is the heartbeat of Christian spirituality and the threshold to true spiritual living and true transformation. And if you don't have that in your life, do you want it? It's only a prayer away, and you can have it right now. Would you pray with me? Father, we praise you this morning, for you are a God who enters into the most difficult problems of our life and our world and our existence, and you say, yes, it is a problem. You don't turn a blind eye towards sin and evil. You don't make friends with death. Lord, you delve and dived right and plunged yourself right into the deepest hearts of all of our problems, Lord, our, our struggle with sin and death, and you condemned all of it by condemning Jesus on the cross so that we would never have to face your condemnation, so that the final word on us could be no condemnation, but instead beloved. Father, we pray this morning, and I especially pray for those of us who might be here this morning who are exploring faith, exploring spirituality, or maybe, maybe even just considering what it might be like to even start entertaining these questions. But Father, especially for those of us who are here this morning who may be wanting this living hope and this sacrificial love in our lives. I pray that right now, Father, in the depths of their heart, that you would call them to yourself and that you would help them to say, Jesus, come into my life. It's as easy as that. Jesus, come into my life. Lord, we pray for all of us this morning that you would truly enter more deeply and more powerfully into all of our lives, and that we would know in the depths of our soul, the final word that rings out, that you are the final word on death and you are the final word on sin and shame. All praise to you, Lord Jesus. Be thou exalted, mighty God over all creation. For we pray all of these things in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.